Okay, we're going to spend a little bit of time today talking about Scripture and some, I guess, some contemporary views of Scripture, some uh, probably get some ancient views of Scripture in there early on. And uh, we were chatting a little bit before I hit the record button, and I think David's got a lot to say on the topic. But before we get into um, what is what is a good view of Scripture, I just want to ask you, David, um, what are some things that you're reading right now? Um, yeah, I've been studying, I guess, a number of books, reading a number of different books from early Christian writers, like kind of through the late 1st through maybe the 6th century, something like that. Um, so like people like uh, Ignatius of Antioch was, was one I really wanted to read. He's somebody that's like to me my idea with him is like he's a guy that has a perspective on very early christianity because like he's like a second or third generation christian himself like a guy that actually knew the apostles um you know these these kind of people that are connected to something and have a view of christianity that's kind of removed from the sort of biases and politics and things that have developed in Christianity over the like the the centuries and millennia that have stood between us and them. Um, so it's like reading people like that, and then like moving on later to other like mystical writers like uh, Gregory of Nyssa and Maximus the Confessor and John Chrysostom, which would be like what fifth and sixth century writers. Um, that like trying to get a perspective on okay so what is it that christianity actually is um and like as this pertains to scripture i guess my kind of whole well i guess before you even get in there i mean you you're, you've kind of been bugged by this issue that when you when you hear the perspective of the ancient christian writers then you feel like they're not talking about the same yeah thing right like that that's we're something about today so like what well, is like, this animal yeah so like even like when you read paul or john um, you know, the writers of the New Testament, you look at these guys and it's like, well, wait a minute. If I were going to sit down and write a letter to the church of Ephesus or, or the church of Kokomo, Indiana or something like, if I was going to sit down and write a letter to a church, would it look anything like it, it wouldn't look anything like what these guys are saying, like the mm -hmm. things that are important to me, the things that I want to talk about, the kind of doctrinal, like central doctrinal points like I look at those guys then and I look at us as Christians now it's like like we're obviously not talking about the same things yeah and like the things that we see of we like we see as so important or even like the center points of Christianity like they just don't exist in the writings of the apostles at all mhm mm um like you you could you could make the argument well that's a lot of that's cultural and contextual like the way we've developed the kind of language and phrasing over the last 2,000 years means we're going to say things differently. And there's some truth to that, but it it's still to me like there's this uneasiness I have that it's like we're, we're not talking about the same thing. And the character of our Christianity to me looks very, very different than mm -hmm. somebody writing in the first or second century. Okay, and, and I'll let you get into, into scripture very quickly, but I guess I do want to start <coughs> off by just setting up a, a modern picture where we've got these sort of two views, um, you, you've got you've got people who um, who view Scripture as being the ultimate authority, as being um, written by God, and it is the Word of God for His people. Um, and then you also have people who say, "Well, this is 
bibliolatry. This is worship of the Bible. Yeah, right. And um, I mean, I got to say, when I first encountered that phrase and that idea, then I, I sort of wondered, like, what in the, what are you saying here? <laughs> like, this is sacred scripture that you're talking about. So what do you mean bibliolatry? Like, shouldn't we shouldn't we hold this in some high position? But I guess I guess I could just say as I paid a little bit more attention, um, maybe also as I was exposed to fewer Mennonites and more Protestants, right. um, then then I, I began to understand what is the issue? Why is it that some people attack the high view of Scripture and come in with what you might instead call a low view of Scripture? Um, I, I guess you can riff on that, or you can just take us back to the ancient world. Yeah, um, I guess, like, first thing that comes to mind with me is, so, like, we have, and, like, even in, like, our traditional Mennonite confessions, we'll have this statement, which is probably, like, the most Protestant thing that I generally see in a traditional Mennonite statement of faith is this idea of scripture as the only rule of faith and practice. And like I hear that 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 phrase and it makes me very uneasy mm -hmm. because it's not what the, it's not what the scripture itself actually says. Um, and this will be most things that we say about scripture are not things that scripture says. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, that's something we'll go into earlier or it, later i mean the, the scripture like people take lines out of scripture and say like this is talking about the scripture but, but the, the scripture makes almost no comment on itself well like i can i can use their same process and tell you that john says the scripture is not the only rule of faith and practice um john himself in his gospel actually makes the statement that this is incomplete it can't contain the gospel mm -hmm. um right and that's something i think we'll want to get into detail later let's not go down that line yet but uh, it's like thinking of this idea of scripture as the only rule of faith and practice. And like the immediate objection that comes to my mind is like, no, the Holy Spirit is. Um, but you want to be careful with what you say with that because you can become like, a, like this kind of like continuing revelation type of charismatic. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, that's not actually what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, which I guess ties back into the ancient writers. Um, well, this is something I had actually just read, like, immediately before we're having this discussion that I think sums up my own viewpoint rather well and maybe maybe strengthens it and solidifies it a little better than I had in my own mind. Um, it was from John Chrysostom, who's like, what is he, 5th century, I think? I think so, yeah, mid-5th century. Um, and he's, he's, he's talking about the Gospels. He's giving homilies on the book of Matthew. And so he's talking about what is scripture, and he makes this statement that actually scripture itself is something that's insufficient, and like it's something that is necessary because of our own sinful nature, our own insufficiency and lack of purity, and says like the better way, the way it's supposed to be, is that the gospel and the scripture and all these things, the truth, the word of God, is supposed to be written by the Holy Spirit on our hearts, which is actually something the scripture itself says. Like, you know, it should be written on the tables of your hearts. And like, that's that's a statement that's in contrast to, like, that's Old Testament, isn't it? Um, does that come from Psalms, maybe? Uh, the, the precise reference you're giving, I'm not I'm not sure of. It reminds me of another passage. It's not what you're talking about. Okay. Um, yeah, I might be getting things mixed up. That's possible. But, uh, um, and, you know, like it does say in Psalms, like the word of God will be bound about your forehead and around your wrists or your hands. Mm -hmm. If you want to translate the word, it's the same word in Hebrew. Um, 
but just so like this there's this idea that well the word of god is supposed to be written on your heart and you could say like that's in contrast to the idea that the word of god is written on tables of stone or books mm -hmm. with ink and paper and like that's the contrast that john chrysostom is making he says we have these scriptures written with ink upon paper and really the only reason we have that is because we don't possess the sort of spiritual purity that precludes that from being necessary i guess i would say um like we don't have such a connection with god that the fullness of truth and the word of god can actually be written on our heart so instead what we need is this this kind of scripture as something like a pilot um something that draws us towards god um i don't i don't recall if he actually says this this I imagine this is more coming from my own words here that like I view the scripture and I got to be careful uh, uh, with how I say this because I, I have gotten my I have already gotten myself into trouble with this statement. The scripture is insufficient to contain the word of God. Um, so like going back to John in his gospel, the very first thing that John introduces the, is the idea that the word of God is Christ. Mm -hmm. And... And like I said earlier, he concludes his gospel by saying, this book that I've written is insufficient to contain Christ. Like if I were to write, it's kind of a paraphrase of what he says, if I were to write about everything that Christ said and all of the miracles and the things that he did on the earth, there wouldn't be enough books in the entire world to contain it. Which is this incredibly profound statement that I think people don't realize what he's saying when he, when he says that. Like he's writing this gospel to try to tell, um, you know, just to, to try to tell the Gentiles and the Greeks and those that are more like philosophically minded what the gospel is and who Christ was. And then he concludes it by saying, like, realize that this actually isn't good enough, that this is just a beginning. Mm -hmm. Well, this idea that it's not good enough, I'm going to use. Uh... Uh, I'm going to reference a source that's not scripture, and I'm going to to go to one of your enemies, which is Thomas Aquinas, yeah. who had uh, who had that some vile thief, <laughs> some some uh, some sort of spiritual experience, um, and he reflected on it and said, "I have seen things that make all my work appear as straw." Yeah, right. And and again, Thomas Aquinas is not scripture. Um, and, and I say that more for the sake of listeners who um, who have this sort of like uh, I even need to be careful. We'll say we'll say the high view of Scripture that is sometimes criticized. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to go ahead and, and acknowledge for the sake of those listeners that uh, okay Aquinas is not the Bible. Yeah, neither is John Chrysostom or right, right. Irenaeus or Ignatius or those other people that I'm reading. Okay, but uh, I mean Aquinas went to to great lengths to to put the faith on the page and in the end what was revealed to him by the holy spirit he said this is um this is something i could never fit on the page um this is something that that doesn't fit in in a book and right again the the bible is sacred scripture it's fine if you want to say well this isn't just a book it's the bible but it still has the problem it's still words that are written down on a page yeah um and and the the living truth of God 
is not words that are on a page. Yeah, so like the, uh, I guess kind of the position that the church develops, like immediately basically, um, there's kind of this idea among Catholics that the canon of scripture is established by the Council of Nicaea. That's actually not true. Um, Boy, I feel like this, this, this statement still needs a little bit more apology for it because, um, because I look back again, I'll step away from scripture again, but just to, to the idea of reader response criticism in literature, um, in English studies. So reader response criticism is basically that this idea that what the text says, or, or specifically what the author is trying to say, authorial intent, is not important to understanding a work of literature at all. You don't need to know anything about yeah. what the author was trying to say, because the, the true meaning of the text lies in how the reader responds to it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the reason I bring that up is because I really disliked that idea when I encountered it, and I still don't, I, I still don't exactly ascribe to it. Well... Um, because because I think the idea behind it, and this will explain why I bring it up here, I think the idea behind reader response criticism is to diminish the role of the author. And now if we're talking about the Bible, then you could say it's to diminish the role of God and the apostles. Right. Um, and to, to elevate your own soul um, and your own, your own whims of interpretation. So that would be like the danger of, of reader response criticism. Um, the truth of it, however, is that a text matters because it speaks to people. And it does speak to people in ways that, that the writer did not imagine that it would. It does interact with the world in ways that the writer doesn't imagine that it would. And, and again, if you have this, uh, I'll again just use the phrase like high view of scripture, not that I'm, not that I'm, countering with a low view of scripture but if you have what i described earlier as the high view of scripture then you'll say well god was the author he knew all these things mm -hmm. um but but i mean then you're giving the bible a place uh you're you're saying we interpret the bible in a way that is impossible to interpret other works yeah when you say that i mean it's it's true of every piece of writing that it, it has meaning when it interacts with the spirit of the person that's reading it. Yeah, right. I, I, again, I'm, well, not, I, I'm not, I don't, I want to be very clear that I'm not setting up this sort of low view of scripture that says like, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the Bible actually says. It matters what you feel about it. I'm, I'm not going to that far extreme, uh, but just making this point that, um, that the, the real, what the Bible does is not, in those words that are on the page, or at okay. least not in them alone. Yeah, so there's a lot of implications in what you just said that I, I think we can work with. Um, the thing that stuck out most to me, well, actually, before I say that, I'll go back and say, like, what I was starting to say, is kind of like the view of the early church develops immediately. Like I mentioned the Council of Nicaea and this idea that they established the canon of Scripture. What they really did is just establish in canon law what already existed, um, which in the tradition. And like there was some inconsistency that existed in the church, but there was also inconsistency after the Council of Nicaea. Um, so like what it, we, we receive as the canon of, of the scripture, basically that that is what was agreed on already in the first century. Okay, I, I, go ahead and hold on to your other points. Because, um, because in contrast to the, <coughs> the Protestant idea of sola scriptura, um, 
I mean, that's that's simply not a comprehensive idea of what are the ways of knowing available to a Christian. Yeah. And typically, you would have Scripture as a way of knowing. Um, I'll, I'll just use the phrase "the Word of God." Scripture as a way of knowing what is the Word of God. Right. Um, but you would also have tradition as another way. Yeah. The authority of the church as another way, which is closely related to tradition, but it's not the same thing. And you also have general revelation which is god's revelation through nature and then you also have specific revelation which is the the rare um mystical experience but but i bring that up i interrupt you to bring that up just to make the point that um when we say sola scriptura our definition of scripture depends on tradition yeah right we uh, which is a point like i've made a lot of times sola scriptura is actually in practical terms, it, it assumes it, is, it assumes more than scripture. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's like the, the the basic statement of sola scriptura is in itself impossible. Mm-hmm. Like you can't do it. Yeah, right. Um, and like the, it's really easy to demonstrate that fact because look at all of the Protestant denominations that claim to be sola scriptura, and they're not because they all they all come to something very very different from each other. Mm-hmm. That. Uh, ultimately winds up to be something founded on whatever tradition they found themselves in yeah right when they established themselves. right so you you have your other um philosophies that come from your culture yeah right and from other things you've been exposed to maybe outside of your culture so, and, and from your own personal life experiences too but you have your yeah. own perspective on things and I, I suppose maybe i should just add nature your own nature in there too your own psychology that's that's born into you. Yeah, so I actually agree with the Catholic statement that, like, you need the tradition of the church. Um, you know, like, as something that establishes your faith. Like, I actually agree with that. What I don't agree with is the idea, like, how far they take it to me. Like, well, that so that means what the church is saying is authoritative, 100%. It's like, look at your own history, guys. You You, you can't actually agree with that statement because at how many points in the past mm-hmm. did the church stand on one position and then people arise from within the church and say no this is wrong and then they get executed as heretics but then the next generation adopts their teaching so it's like well here's a place where the tradition of the church was wrong and somebody had to come out and and like become a martyr for the truth yeah and set things back on course but so, like, if you take this idea of the traditions of the church too far, you cut that process out, which is, I guess, sort of what Protestantism is reacting to. I mean, basically, what you're saying is, and and when you mention tradition, you're you're including church authority in there also, because yeah. you're saying in the moment the authority was wrong. Right. Um. I mean, not that you have to use my schema, but but I just yeah, say but, both of those things are at work in there. But but what you're saying is is tradition is fallible and authority yeah. is fallible right um and and you make no comment about the the types of revelation that i mentioned which we could say th- those are fallible too actually your mystical experience could be fallible too yeah um but but also we're making the point well your own personal interpretation of scripture alone is really fallible yeah so like the position the early church comes to pretty quickly is that you have scripture at the center point and the idea there is this is the most complete thing like you can't add or take away from it. like that's why you have this statement in revelations if you add to or take away from this book your name is going to be stricken from the book of life like it's a recognition of the fact that this is complete 
you can't add anything to it. Like there's nothing more that can be added to it. And so we established this is the canon of scripture because it's perfect, it's complete, as much as it can possibly be. Um, but then you have the tradition has to surround that to, t to help you remain grounded in it. Because like I mentioned, if you just have this runaway sola scriptura, people are just gonna run off in all directions. And so then they end up developing this... Right, which uh, sounds like a slippery slope argument, but you're you're speaking from a historical perspective yeah, I, that that is, in fact, what has happened. Right, it is. I mean, it happened immediately yeah, in right, the Reformation. Right. So, like, look at the Swiss Reformed Church and the Lutheran Church, the two major branches of the Reformation, and where they went with things. Like, oftentimes they went in complete opposite directions. Mm -hmm. And so, like, who's right? Both of them are, are claiming to stand 100% and solely on the authority of scripture. It's like you look at the history, it's like, no, you're not guys, actually. Um, you know, like the radical reformers and the Anabaptists will say the same thing. It's like, well, actually you're not. You, uh, you're, building on a, you're building on something that already exists and then you develop your own traditions that then in turn inform those that come after you. So like this, this ends up becoming a really, really big deal in Anabaptists. Which is why I like to point the finger at my own people and say, like, you're not believing this because so much of what we have is openly acknowledging the fact that we've received this faith from tradition. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's a huge deal to us. And, it, like, you mean how, that you're not believing the thing about scripture is the only rule for faith right. and practice? Yeah, and, like, how nobody can see that contradiction. Like, it surprises me. It's like, can you not see how much you're elevating tradition? And the idea of the martyrs and the faith that's been passed down to you, mm -hmm. um, and recognize well, the and fact certainly that, there, there are lots of rules of practice that are not yeah, found right. in scripture. Right. Um, yeah, and the thing, like you mentioned, I didn't speak anything of this yet. I've been trying. I've, I've been working my way to it, and it's something you mentioned. What you were saying is, is like when you read a book or you read, especially if you read the Bible, like ultimately what matters is how it speaks to your spirit. Um, and I mentioned something already of the Holy Spirit, like that being to my mind, what Protestants tend to be leaving out is the necessity of the Holy Spirit informing your understanding. I, I think it's striking how, um, which is also how, the thing that how like unimportant the Holy Spirit is in, in the view of like basic, basically general everyone. theology. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cause it, I was going to say like, that's ultimately what happens in Catholicism too. Um, well, I don't want to make this sound like a, a tirade against Catholicism. Like, in any institutional religion, any form of institutionalized Christianity must, by necessity, cut out the idea of revelation. Mm -hmm. Because, like, that's... So what, 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 what you set up in the church, you, again, you have the Word of God. And if I say the Word of God, I'm not referring strictly to the scriptures. I'm referring to Christ as the Word of God. Like that needs to be. I need to define that right now, so right. you don't get confused. And you're and so you're you, not making that up. You're taking that from the Bible, from yeah, the first right. chapter of John specifically. Um, so you have the Word of God as the center of your faith, and the Holy Scriptures as like a window of the Word of God. And then on either side of it, you have the two tools by which you have to approach these, because like John Chrysostom says. You're an imperfect being. You're not pure of heart. You're corrupt, and you're going to misinterpret things. You're going to misunderstand things. You're going to make things conform to your vanity. 
So then what we have on either side of what should be the center are two opposing principles that should be kept in balance because that holds you to the center. And like you could describe, like using language we've used before, you have a left-handed and a right-handed principle around the center. Like the left-handed is the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Um, like this is the thing that, this is the opening, like mm -hmm. the open force. And then on the other side, you have the traditions of the church. Right. And so, like, this is the thing that holds things together. Like, you need to have both of them. Right. But but it's in in, in bringing that up, the right hand is the institution. Yeah. Right. And, and you're, I mean, sort of almost by definition, you're saying the institution does not include the left hand. Um, the institution is this, uh, like, it's this visible body. It's this thing that exercises control, and it's this thing that that uh, offers definitions. Um, to the world, but but it's not. Um, it's not it's open. Not, it's, like by its very nature, it's not open to the spirit. Yeah, right. And like that's not a that's not a criticism against it. Right. Like it's just a statement that these are like I said already. These are forces that act in in opposition by necessity mm -hmm. in order to balance each other out. Right. Yeah. So I like mean, this is a, you, yeah. You say you're not you're not criticizing it. Like you need you need the institution. You need like the traditions. You need stability in a, a community of faith. You need these sort of clear definitions of what does it mean to be a part of this faith. Um, so all those, all those rigid controlling things, or many of the, those rigid controlling things that the church does, are necessary things. Yeah. Um, but it's also necessary to have that um, uh, Holy Spirit breaking through that. Right. Um, it's also necessary to have those things that don't fit. So what's, what's fascinating is to look at this process at work in the history of the church, um, like especially in the first seven or eight centuries of church history. It's like you can see this, pro this, pro bleh, you can see this process working actively where whenever you have, so like the natural tendency to me appears to be something like, so you have this in the Bible also, is always going to err to the right. You're always going to err towards institution. Mm -hmm. You're always going to err towards... Um, towards certainty. Yeah, yes. towards certainty, towards collectivizing, towards categorizing things. Like, which is, like this is just a slight aside. Like, it's interesting to see, like, that's even true of the political left right now, is their drive is actually driving towards this really right-handed thing, which is to categorize everything. Yeah. And define everything. Um, and um, and uh, I mean also to persecute, you know. Yeah, right. The, like those to exclude. <laughs> yeah, right. Everything. Right. Um, it's like so. But the reason I bring yeah, that I up, don't, is, I don't mean persecution of Christians. To be clear, I mean I mean people who don't fit um, their political philosophy. Yeah. So like that's the reason I bring that up is because like that's the inevitable inevitable thing that will happen to anybody that's in the position of power is they will become a right hand institution. So like. A perfect example of that, again, is the Soviet Union, which is, you know, like this, this Marxist communist revolution. So we would consider that to be like the most left thing there is. Left, I mean, like open, you want you, you want to raise up the margins, raise up the little guy, which is what, what communism wants to do. Yeah, and so, it, but, but then it just immediately becomes the most closed and excluding organization, like, that anybody ever imagined. Yeah, right. Um... And, like, that's just, it's, it's going to happen. So that happens within the history of the church. 
that the church frequently in its history will fall onto the right hand and become very like rigidly institutionalized but what's really fascinating is every time if you look so i'm going to use the I'm, I'm using the first seven or eight centuries of the church history like deliberately as a point of removing ourselves from any commentary on any of the institutions that exist now it's like so we're talking about something ancient that we're all tied to um so like this way it doesn't become a criticism of the catholic church or of the lutherans or something like that um it's like this is that like hint hint <laughs> like, <laughs> um, just so you know i'm not criticizing these specific people no that's not what i meant at all like i i, I meant that what i said that yeah like, yeah okay this is this is this is a statement that like look here's the early history of the church and we can see this process and that can give us a window that we can apply to what we see now and like what we see in later history um so trying to be less controversial than what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so like every time the church falls onto the right hand, it ends up like immediately adopting heresy as its official position. Um, and like even having ecumenical councils that institutionalize a heretical position that are then later overturned. Um, and so like you see like imme immediately, like really quickly, once the church organizes and becomes an institution, like which is something that has to happen and is inevitable, like it's impossible for it not to happen. Um, so whenever the church becomes unified and institutionalized, it falls onto the right hand, and then prophets arise within the church, and these are the people that today we recognize as the saints and the church fathers. They're actually people that stood against the right hand. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're very... Almost always, they're very left-handed figures that are like trying to open the church up to the things that it's closed itself up to. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's interesting, like how often that is the model of a hero. Yeah. I right. mean, I uh, in uh, we'll say, um, I mean, I guess I'll just go ahead and, and pin this on Jordan Peterson, this idea that that the um, the quest of the hero is to confront chaos. And when you when you can confront chaos, you bring order back into the world, and then you succeed and you win the girl and all that too. But uh, um, but you also have this other pattern that's that's what must be done is you must confront order. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And like so, like you always have like this part of like the and heroes. E either one can make you a saint. I mean, you can be the saint by by you know going into the the pagan lands. Um, and uh, uh, I don't, I don't want to go too far onto this, but I'll just say you can you can go into foreign lands and slay dragons, and the people that are there will remember for thousands of years that you yeah, that you but, slayed that dragon of chaos. But you can also become a saint by standing up to the church. Yeah, but but even then, like actually, who in, in, if you look at it, who are the people that actually do go out into the foreign lands and slay the dragons? Like they're not they're not figures of the institution ever. Right. Um, like they're usually outcasts like oftentimes so like you see this like I think you see this I need to study it more to, so like take this with a grain of salt I think you see this in the missions to the Slavic people that those people are kind of outcasts they're people that were exiled or driven away for one reason or another you definitely see that in the Christianization of the Germanic tribes the missionaries to the Germans are Aryans and they're people that are fleeing the Empire in like the fourth, fourth and fifth century, 
because they're heretics mm -hmm. they're, like they're exiled like it's either run away into the wilderness like get out of the empire or die yeah and so like those are the missionaries um so like the missionary generally is somebody that doesn't fit in the system right which is like maybe why modern missions actually don't work it's because they've become an institution of the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I mean, and like an we, when we talked about system. missions in the past, and then we were sort of talking about this idea that uh, a lot of missionaries try to go out in the mission field and continue to live their right. their life of materialist luxury, and so they haven't they haven't given up the system, they haven't uh, sacrificed it in order to go into the mission field. Right. But, yeah, they try to bring that whole system with them. Yeah, and so, like, this is, you see this in the book of Acts, and also, like, early ch Christian history, is how God spreads his church is by striking the church and scattering it. So it's like, in order for you to become missionaries, you have to become outcasts. Mm -hmm. Like, it's sort of this idea that you can't actually be a missionary unless you're forced out of your home, or you're forced out of your institution. So, like, the early Christians, like, that's kind of the key to their mission, is they're all Jews. But since they become Christians, they can't be Jews anymore. They can't stay home. They have to run away. They have to flee. And, like, they find themselves in this position, like, even as the Greeks and the Romans convert to Christianity. Like, they do that. So, like, you have this, like, for the first three centuries of the church, where all of the Christians are in a position where they... They actually can't be a part of the system. And it's like the mere act of becoming a, a, a sincere Christian is to be excluded from society. Mm -hmm. Now I'm, I'm going to jump back in here and get you off topic just so we can kind of get back on topic. Um, one, I, I did want to mention you were talking about the left hand, which uh, again is, um, is associated with... Um, liberalism and liberty is associated with mysticism and the Holy Spirit is associated with um, openness concern for the margins and um, when that when that takes power like that's also uh, in the the chaos and order yin and yang or we got to switch those around we say uh, uh, so no I did it right that time I said chaos and order um, uh, okay so in that in that dichotomy then then the left hand is is chaos right um and it's yin but when it takes over then then you wind up with the opposite immediately um and you were mentioning that with these these sort of left-wing totalitarian what wind up becoming totalitarian regimes even though they're supposedly working on behalf of the left hand right um but it, it, it's actually kind of reminiscent of this um this promise which i think you'll want to talk to and talk about in a later discussion this promise that um, the earth will not be destroyed in flood. Yeah. Chaos, um, chaos is never going to destroy the world. Well, it's interesting. And oh, and, sorry, and so, um, so what you have is like as soon as you have potential for for the left hand to take over the world, it it, it immediately swings to the opposite. And then I also wanted to say like it, it kind of reminds me also of the um, the the mantra nature abhors a vacuum yeah and right. a vacuum is also like like this place of utter chaos and groundlessness mm -hmm. um and if it's created then it's immediately filled with order yeah so like this is something that christians have kind of always recognized um 
although like there are certainly some more institutional forms of Christianity that are less opposed to this idea in our current era. But like there's this recognition that when Christianity becomes tolerated and accepted and then eventually even institutionalized in the empire, that it loses something. Mm-hmm. Like well, that, I mean, that it, like it you just... know, you've been using historical examples, but I, I think we're very much in that place. Yeah. You know, I was talking, uh, I guess that was before we started recording, I was talking about like, well, it's, it's uh, unless you really get down and study something like Hinduism or Buddhism, then you can't really know what's going on because you're exposed to uh, pop culture icons that are that are teaching you about these things. That's not, that's not the true thing. But like in, in Christianity... Um, we have, um, I mean, you go into like a, a, a Christian bookstore and it's, um, everything on the shelves there is, is somebody that's trying to, um, like deceive people so that they can make money off of their right. purchases. Um, and it's like, we've got such a, a business and such an institution and, uh, Joel Osteen winds up being kind of a whipping boy in terms of the position that I'm describing right now, because, uh, I mean, like... He, he lives in this uh, extremely extravagant, like so extravagant it's disgusting to look at kind of house. Um, I mean, like he's he's a major institution and people like to criticize him, but um, he's he's sort of actually the ideal of modern Christianity. Um, it, I mean, it, it is so much of a system, and if you are the person who can excel in the system, then then that. Joel Osteen is the greatest thing that you can aspire to be. Yeah. I'm, and I'm saying that's a bad thing. <laughs> that's not a good thing. Um, but but that is the case. I mean, like everybody who's for for the most part, everybody who's criticizing him, like he actually is their ideal. Right. Um, uh, but again, like we've we've become this system, and and we're tied in with the empire, um, in 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 ways that everybody's a little uncomfortable with. Yeah. Um, Liberals are especially uncomfortable with the role of Christianity in politics, but, but yeah. so are conservatives. Right. Um, anyway, <laughs> this is a, quite an interesting discussion on scripture. <laughs> no, no. That's why I said I wanted to get us back on topic, and I, I mentioned a couple other things, but then you wanted to go on a different uh, a different tangent. But what I wanted to say was you, you, you got onto this idea of right and left hand, yeah. and this idea of the open openness of the left hand, and the close... Um, close-fistedness of the right hand and what you often have in our view of scripture you said we always fall back on the right hand that's the kind of the mistake that we're making in our institutions our institutions always become too rigid and too crystallized although they do have the opposite problem too um but uh but but that's an error we we often fall in that direction but in in interpretation of scripture well i'm thinking of like a, a business like a business can be uh can you can you can have like rule a business with an iron fist and that can be disastrous but you can also be like so loosey-goosey with everything that the whole thing just falls yeah, apart right. and like a total absolute failure because of your your uh your uh leaning toward chaos but anyways um in scripture we also in in the way we interpret scripture i think maybe we also tend to have this view that we we fall to the right hand we fall to the errors right. that, that come along with certainty and tyranny and clear and perfect, precise definitions of everything. Um, and when we do that, then 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 the Holy Spirit is not part of the process. And and even to get a little bit less spiritual, um, although I don't want to be dismissive of the idea of the Holy Spirit, but just to speak in in maybe more familiar terms, um, what Scripture means to 
to you and to other people um, is not really important anymore. Right. What's important is like how you can use it to argue your point. Like uh, certainty and, and control become why scripture matters. So that's sort of that's sort of the problem with that uh, quote unquote high view of scripture. That's sort of the problem with bibliolatry is that um, the the left hand is excluded. The well, the mystery, um, the Holy Spirit, and the way that it works on the spirit of an individual is all excluded. Yeah. So like that's interesting because. There's some argument that that's the that like that's the symbol of the apocalypse, that that's like maybe what the beast of revelations is, is like it's this force um, that wants wants to put everything in its place, wants to categorize and define and like hold everything together mm -hmm. in this in this tyrannical way. So it's like this force of tyranny. So like this is the thing ultimately, like ultimately what it is is that the mark of man is that he will descend into tyranny always. Mm -hmm. Like every society that has ever been eventually descends into absolute tyranny. And when that happens, that's the end. I, I'd really want to pick at this point um, from a biblical perspective before before making a definitive comment on this, but as far as the way that the mark of the beast is interpreted, when people look at something in our world today and they say, oh, that's the mark of the beast, oh, that's the mark of the beast, that's the mark of the beast, you know, and, and you get these kind of things that wind up sounding like like Christian conspiracy theories. Yeah. But but they all they all are things where um, the, the, the spirit of the individual is in total submission to the system. Right. That's what people fear when they say this is the mark of the beast. Yeah, and like there's a sense in which like, so they're actually right. All those things, so they're wrong in like, they're actually themselves succumbing to like the number of the beast <laughs> when they say this is the mark of the beast. But yeah, that's they, kind of ironic. I mean, right. like as far as this, like we need perfectly clear definitions of everything and right. aha, I found it in my society today. Yeah, right. Like that is like, I thought about that too. Like it's kind of funny. It's like, well, you yourself are actually embracing the mark of the beast. Um, like I, just because like, I like, I, 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 I keep thinking about this idea. What it says is like, there's the number of the beast and it's the number of, it's the, like the way it is presented generally is it's the number of a man which most people will interpret as it's the number of a specific man. It's like, no, like, knowing something about ancient Greek grammar, that's not actually what it's saying. It's saying it's the number of man, like, you can make the argument it's saying it's the number of man in general. Like, this is the number of man. This is mm -hmm. this thing that describes you as human, is that what you want to do is reduce everything to categories and define everything and, like make everything submit to your ideal of order so like this tyrannical process mm -hmm. so it's like that's the thing that the church like the church this idea so like this idea that people develop of the institutionalized church as the whore of babylon in revelations it's like well they're kind of right but that doesn't mean the catholic church is the whore of babylon and like it's more this idea of uh putting everything putting everything in its place and like developing these tyrannical systems like that's that's what that's what we're talking about here
mm-hmm. which every institution does that. Yeah. Um, okay, I wanna I wanna kind of hammer scripture as much as we can. Yeah, from, right. from here on to the end. Um, so I don't know if you if you had another comment you wanted to make in terms of the mark of the beast. No. If not, I got another direction. I'd, I'd that, be happy to go. I, I think it'd be a subject to discuss later. Well, I mean, in its relation to scripture. Yeah. Um, no, just the point. I think it's probably a good idea to summarize the point I'm trying to bring out is like. Okay, so like your natural tendency is towards the right, and like maybe this is the process of revelations as something that unfolds continually. The process is always going to be towards the right hand, towards like despotism and tyranny. And then like when that happens, the ne- the ne- necessary process is that that world has to be destroyed. It has to come to an end so that it can be like it can be recreated after this kind of divine pattern. Mm-hmm. So like this is something that's happened many times in the history of the church is that it's fallen on the right hand and become tyrannical and then is destroyed. It's it's struck down and scattered and shattered and then put back together. Like resurrected basically. Um, so it's like this, I don't know, like tying this back to this idea of scripture is uh, like don't fall onto that understanding of scripture like this tyrannical application of scripture, like realize that what you're doing is like gross sin. Um, okay, and, and for clarity, I mean, the, like the right hand is good and the left hand is good. Like, yeah, right. It, um, the, the extreme, if we go to the political sphere, the extreme of the right hand is going to be fascism. Yeah. Um, the extreme of the left hand, we've mentioned communism, but also anarchy, which they seem like they're, uh, they're contradictions, but they're both kind of extremes of... Of um, of openness and and release uh, alleged release of control like breakdown breakdown of hierarchies maybe that's a good way to say that they're the same thing um, because anarchy and communism both have this belief that um, the the hierarchy is the problem yeah well that's just a really interesting observation you made that like basically the uh, um, the promise of God to know is that, like, um, I'm not going to allow anarchy to be a thing that ever happens again. <laughs> yeah, right. Because, <laughs> like, that's what you have before the flood is, like, absolute anarchy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that's not going to happen anymore. Instead, everything's just going to resolve into tyranny. Yeah, right. So and, it's like, now and, the world isn't going to be destroyed by flood, it's going to be destroyed by fire. Like, and, and true anarchy winds up being being this kind of a joke. Uh, not, I shouldn't say joke because there's something there's something very serious about it, but it, it winds up being like, okay, I can see how you how you would say you believe this as a symbol, but it's obvious that this is never going to exist in the real yeah, world. Right. It's obvious if you if you achieve your anarchist utopia, it is so obvious that it will immediately be filled with order and probably with tyrannical order. Yeah. But anyways, I mentioned those extremes: the the fascism and the the communism and anarchy. Um, just to say, like, the extremes of these things are bad. Right. The extreme of the right hand is bad. The extreme of the left hand is bad. Yeah. But that does not mean that the right hand is bad or that the left hand is bad. So, like, if you if you accuse your enemy, your liberal enemy, of just being a communist or just being an anarchist, or if you accuse your conservative enemy as just being a fascist, like, there's there's a, a lot of truth in that accusation. Yeah, but you're also cutting but, something out of yourself <laughs> right, that you need. Like, you are ruining the whole world when, when you when you say that the right hand is fascist. Right. Um, or you say that the left hand is, is whatever you're going to say about it, it yeah. which the left hand uh, naturally is harder to define than the right. Yeah, right. Um, because, it's, because it's chaotic and mysterious. But uh, anyways... Um, it, reducing the enemy to to their to that extreme position 
um, again, like there's, there can be value in doing that, um, in, in recognizing that those are the extremes of those positions, but really what you need is both of those. Yeah. Um, so, so that's why, like, we're not going with this, uh, with what we call the high view of scripture, what I call the high view of scripture. I mean, right. I, 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 and I hate you to say that I don't have the high view of scripture because it, it, it sounds like I'm saying something that I don't actually believe. Um, or it sounds like I'm criticizing the, the thing that I actually do believe, but I, I hopefully I've made my, my definition clear enough. Um, so like, we're not, we're not holding to what we call the high view of scripture or to what I call the low view of scripture, either one, because, um, because you, you sort of need, you need the tradition, you need some definitions, um, you need some, some certainty about what is, what is the thing that we're rallying around and what does it mean. And that's, I mean, that's sort of what the role of tradition is in terms of those ways of knowing. Um, but, but you also need, um, and I mean, maybe in a way more importantly, you need, um, it's, that thing's connection to the mysterious spirit of of people, yeah, of yourself and others, yeah, and like so, like this essentially becomes, and that's well, like uh, the uh, uh, Chrysostom sermon that you were talking about at the beginning. Like, ideally, we wouldn't need scripture; we would just have the the mysterious. Yeah, we, so the we would just thing, have that Holy Spirit connection. But but in reality, that doesn't work. Yes, so I'll say this about Chrysostom, like to kind of frame what I want to say next um, about this idea of approaching Scripture and the and the Church Fathers and these kind of people. It's important to remember that uh, about Chrysostom, he was he set himself actively in in opposition to the institution, and the result of that is he stood against the empire and the imperial court and the imperial, like basically, the Church as it set itself in cooperation with the empire and the result of that actually is that he was the archbishop of or the patriarch of constantinople but he gets exiled he's kicked out of the empire it's like no you're not welcome here anymore so like this is a great uh a great father of the church or a great doctor of the church or however your tradition wants to define it um in his day he was an outcast and he was an exile and like the reason i bring that up so like when I approach these things, like the, the whole reason, the whole motivation for me in reading these people is that recognizing these are actually outsiders. These are people that are standing against the opposite, or standing against the institution. Mm -hmm. In that the institution, like not not that the institution is inherently like that institution in itself is something that is inherently evil and corrupt, but that when things fall excessively on the right hand, somebody needs to come in on the left hand and set it back in its place. Yeah, and it, I mean, it is interesting. We've talked about this just in regards to mystics generally, but these people wind up becoming pillars of the tradition. Yeah. Um, pillars, even though they were these, these mystical, we'll say left-hand figures, um, they wind up becoming so important to the, the tradition, which is that right hand. And it, and it seems like that... If it doesn't work that way, you're in trouble. Like if you have these these uh, these figures that oppose you, and you don't make them the centerpiece of the tradition, or or like a centerpiece, not the centerpiece. Like you don't make them very important to the tradition. 
then um, then all that means is that you're going to continue in your errors and you're going to destroy yourself. So you see that in church history, but you see that in literature too. Like yeah. um, great literature basically is literature that that challenges problems in the culture. Right. Um, and, and I sort of hesitate to make such a universal statement as that, but, um, I mean, it, it is, it is kind of interesting how many of the people that become the canon are people that, um, that were, um, were such radicals in their time and, and they, they pointed out all the problems. Um, they, they point out what's wrong with the ideal in our society. Yeah. But so what, what I was trying to get to with that, so like when I read somebody like Chrysostom or uh, even somebody like Paul, like I don't think you should approach these people as like looking for things that uphold your institution or your doctrines or your beliefs. Like that's not how you should approach these guys. Instead, you should approach them and look at like, how are these people actually standing against me? How are they actually in opposition? to my way of looking at things so that <coughs> they can swing me back to the center. Mm-hmm. I'm like, so like, remember, like that, that is actually the role that Paul himself played in the early church was to balance things when they swung too far to the right. So like, he's the guy that goes to Peter and James and the church in Jerusalem when he hears that they're swinging into this, uh, like this Jewish model this kind of pharisaical, oppressive, totalitarian idea of Christianity. And, you know, we need to conform everybody to the pattern of the law and to Jewish custom and tradition. And he goes, he, he's the one who goes to Peter and confronts him and rebukes him. It's like, no, and swings everything back to the center. Um, and like we mentioned, all these church fathers, that's what they're doing too, is they're going to the institutions and saying no, and oftentimes actually dying for saying no. Yeah. But then in the next generation or a couple generations later, they they cause the swing back to the center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of what we're trying to do, basically. I mean, that's like we're we're just criticizing everybody. <laughs> right. But um, but but especially like these uh, um, these institutions or thought patterns that become kind of excessively right-handed um, that become totalizing that define things in this perfectly clear way that that does not allow for life um, and and trying to, to swing those things back to the center not yeah. necessarily by not I mean certainly not by being extreme left-handed people um, but uh, but right. but recognizing like um, Things are things are out of balance. Well, things by their nature must be out of balance. Um, like they're always going to fall. Like that's what we said. They're always going to fall on the right hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like again, we're talking about scripture here. Oh yeah. Um, so it's like the point, like the overall overarching point. I guess I'm trying to make. I, don't, I assume you're kind of in the same <laughs> thought. Is that your view? Like even if you think of yourself as a liberal Christian. Your view of scripture, or your view of truth, or the word of God, however you want to define this idea, is probably falling on the right hand. It's probably falling into some kind of a tyrannical model. Um, and if it's not, like I know there are people out there that are, that are legitimately open. 
but they're probably not there for very long or at least their institutions aren't going to remain there mm -hmm. like because it's not possible well i mean it, it, when you say that it's like well i i trying to make sense of, of exactly what you mean because I, I i know what you mean and then i'm like i don't know if you mean exactly what i, I know that you mean well so um, like but but no I'm, I'm thinking like if you are this liberal theologian like you're describing then um then probably the traditionalists are wrong and evil. Yeah. <laughs> I right. mean, like that's that's sort of what that would mean. Um, you're you're drawing a line in the sand and you're saying these people are on the wrong side of that line, which is which is the the right-handed thing to do. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and then like I already used the example like from the more like cultural and political sphere of those that stand on what we would think of as the left. Um, and like having these very liberal and progressive and sort of open values that you would rightly characterize in there at the beginning as something of the left hand. Mm -hmm. But like what's already happened, we can see it pretty plainly, is that these people have become the new tyrants. Yeah. They've become the new right hand. And those holding to more traditional conservative values, suddenly they're, the, they're actually the ones that are that are working on the left, like working to the left. Uh, this also, man, I sure want to get back to scripture, but this also reminds me of that uh, that opening line of the Tao Te Ching, which I think I've mentioned on, on recording before, but the Tao that can be spoken of is not the everlasting Tao. The Tao, the name that can be named, is not the everlasting name. Um, and the Tao is like the, the, the sort of spiritual extreme of the left hand. The Tao is identified with, um, with like the, the nothingness that preceded God and the created order um, or preceded heaven um, but uh, but it's like um, you you can't you can't talk about it you can't talk about um, the left hand you can't talk about the beliefs of the open-minded person because as soon as you start talking about it like it's no longer <laughs> uh, now you've put a definition on it yeah and now it's no longer the chaos and now it's no longer the right. the openness. Um, now it's a belief system once you started talking about it. Right. Um, anyways, I do want to get to, to Scripture. Um, I want to change the subject a little bit in terms of how we've been approaching Scripture <laughs> and actually talk about it for a change. No, actually, I, I think I think the tangent has, in in my mind anyways, has been fruitful. I don't know if, yeah. if everybody who's listening has, well, has I mean, made sense of that. But, but that, that rigidness, I, um, I think, is helpful to, to understand what... What is somebody talking about when they say bibliolatry? Right. What is somebody talking about when they criticize a high view of Scripture? They're, they're criticizing a kind of rigidness that doesn't serve anybody spiritually. Right. It's only good for attacking people. It's and, only good and for controlling excluding people. people. Yeah, and excluding people. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, control and exclusion, I guess. Um, but like I, a, even, even attack, like attack is serving, like attack is secondary to some other function. Yeah, right. Welcome to The Sacred Life with David and John Baylor. In this episode, we're going to take some sins of the right hand, things like excessive order, control, rigidness, um, excessive rationality, and we're going to apply those things to the ways that we interpret scripture. This is part one of a three-part conversation, so the end will be kind of cut off abruptly, but it will continue for you next week. Thanks for joining us in the Sacred Life. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, then all that we ask is for you to subscribe, think of a friend who might enjoy it, and share it with them. 
And please join us again for another walk in the woods, another conversation, and another journey in the sacred life.